read to you now what are some of the hardest words to hear in the entire Bible. They're going to come up on the screen as well. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And now, like I say, this may well be the most difficult command in the whole of Scripture, but just like our Exodus passage where God commands Moses and then the elders of the Israelites to go to Pharaoh, the command is followed by a promise. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. These words have comforted those who are persecuted for following Jesus. It's even assured those who have lost their lives because of their allegiance to him. But these words are also for those who are to take up their cross daily, to live a life under their master's example of self-giving love. And however you look at this, this is a matter of life and death. Now, before I worked for the church here, I used to work on university campuses with students, trying to help them understand and respond to some of these commands of Jesus. And most of the students I came across were open to Christianity. And I remember one student in particular after having a good chat with them about life and some of God's commands, I remember asking them what they thought of it all. And they paused for a moment. And they asked me what was quite a common question, what still is a common question, but is also quite a personal question. I wonder if you recognize it. They asked me, if God is out there, why hasn't he given me a sign? Why doesn't he make his existence more obvious to me? And I remember in that moment, kind of reflex firing off a follow-up question of, oh, what kind of sign would convince you? What are you looking for? But the more I've thought about it, especially in this Exodus uh, sermon series, and the more I've come to see that the Bible doesn't really ever seem too concerned with providing um, evidence that God exists. The Bible just starts with God in Genesis, in the beginning, God. And last week we heard about the revealing of God's name as Moses asks, who are you? And God replies, I am who I am. God doesn't seem too preoccupied with demonstrating to us that he exists. But as you read the Bible, especially here in Exodus, especially in this passage today, God does seem concerned about demonstrating to us that he saves. That his promises to deliver will hold. 
And so here's the big message this afternoon. If you're making notes, you should try and write this down. It's longer than a quick sentence, sorry. But this is it. I think God is showing us in his word that just like the elders of the Israelites in our passage, when it comes to believing that God will save us, there is more than enough to go on, more than enough to hear, more than enough to see. I think we're going to see that God makes some big promises to inspire big action. And, give, and he has given us the right sign to make the unimaginable real. So that in this life and death matter of what we do with our lives and with Jesus, you might be convinced that as you respond to his call, his call to come and die with him, laying down your life for others, that as you do that, you are in fact being saved. But do you believe? Have you heard enough? Have you seen enough? Well, perhaps in the end, I think we'll see that the best question you can ask is not actually, why no signs for me? But, in what we have heard, in what we have seen, what is God trying to show us? And so, let's get into it. Uh, and so you can look down at your Bibles. The, the big key verse in the passage, I think, is the first verse of chapter 4. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Um, and we'll get into that now and the first thing I want to say is that big promises can inspire big actions now look at that first verse of chapter four Moses question is a significant one and it anticipates the Israelites not believing Moses's message or the reality that Moses is actually God's messenger God tells Moses to go to the elders of the Israelites and deliver a message. And then for Moses and the elders to go to the king of Egypt and deliver a second message. And the summary of both messages amount to the news that the time has come. The time has come for the long-awaited release of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. The time has come. But notice, the time is not here yet. That first half of our passage, um, chapter 3, 16 to 22, is full of God saying, I will, I will, I will. Promises. And so, as you take a closer look, you might be able to see why the Israelites may well think this news is too good to believe. God says, the God says, that he's seen their suffering and their misery. And in his compassion, his care, he will keep his promises and will himself, he will come down and fight for them. 
He even predicts that Pharaoh, probably the most powerful human being in the known world at the time, Pharaoh will be forced, arms behind his back, forced to let the Israelites go. And just think, just imagine being an enslaved person, generationally enslaved, 400 years. Think of the scale of that kind of promise. In comparison to the work fields of Egypt, a land flowing with milk and honey would be paradise. And even though I'm sure they might be willing to get stuck in, it would be God, not an Israelite army. It would be God who will do the fighting. In fact, if anyone's to lift a finger, it'll be the Israelite women. They'll ask their, the Egyptians for valuables on the way out of Egypt. The victory over Pharaoh will be an act of grace. It'll be a gift. In fact, look at the end of verse 22. It'll be such an act of grace that it will be the children, sons and daughters, it will be the sons and daughters who will transport the wealth of Egypt out of Egypt, chains around their tiny necks, rings on their little fingers, the wealth of Egypt over the shoulders of their little babies. There's no strength or skill that's required from the Israelites. God is promising that the Israelite slaves will plunder their Egyptian masters. The time has come for the long-awaited, excessively gracious, knockout victory over Pharaoh. And big promises can inspire us to big actions. And we see that in the life of Jesus, don't we? Jesus seems to love making big promises. And now these should be coming up on the screen. I've, I've just written a few down for us. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. These are the words of Jesus. Those are some pretty big things to say. And one of the most striking promises that Jesus makes, and I know this story is important to many of you, is the promise that Jesus made to a guilty thief, crucified alongside Jesus, who simply asked that Jesus would remember him. And through the agony of the cross, Jesus graciously answers the thief, truly, I tell you, today you will, you will be with me in paradise. Big promises can inspire us to big actions, especially, especially if the promise being made comes from a heart overflowing in compassion. 
Now, Despicable Me, some of you will know it if you have six-year-olds like me. Despicable Me is an animated film about the coming of age of a despicable supervillain. And he's called Gru. Some of you know this. And at the start of the movie, he is a lonely, vindictive bad guy. But by the end of the movie, he's been transformed due to his, his love for his three adopted daughters, Margot, Edith, and Agnes. And he's become a generous and considerate father who would do anything for those girls. And that, by the end of the movie, is put to the test when he has to rescue his daughters. And the rescue attempts become incredibly desperate after helping her sisters, Margot, the eldest daughter, the one who is most aware of Gru's failings, the daughter who saw Gru's selfish motives from the beginning, she has to somehow trust Gru enough to jump into his arms or face certain death. And Gru is doing everything in his power to convince her, to convince her that she should jump to him and be saved, that she could trust him. And in an incredibly touching moment, Gru desperately holds out his hands and says to her, Margot, I will catch you and I will never, I will never let you go again. And it's that big promise made from the heart that seals it for Margot. And as scared as she is, she jumps. You see, big promises can inspire us to big actions. And so think again of that thief on the cross next to Jesus, struggling for his last breaths. The ticking clock of death and judgment are loud as loud as they can possibly be, as Jesus promises that thief, that thief, that he will join him. He will join Jesus in his perfect future. Let me ask you this. In what emotional state did that thief die? Oh, let me put it like this. After Jesus had spoken to him and his strength had gone and his time had come, what do you think that thief's last words were? And of course, in the Bible, we don't know. I'm asking you to imagine. If he believed that incredible promise of Jesus, I imagine that his final words, if he could get them out at all, would be something along the lines of, thank you, thank you. And I'm sure, I'm sure that many of you around the room remember the moment you came to believe what God had done for you. The moment you came to believe the promises of Jesus for you and with your heart full of gratitude uttered those same words. I remember the time for me. You see, believing God is often as simple as saying thank you to him. In fact, the Christian never moves on from gratitude. 
big promises inspire us to big actions and one of the biggest actions we can take is to recognize God's goodness. See belief in this God of big promises often looks like big gratitude. You see the exodus was to be an excessively gracious knockout victory over Pharaoh for the Israelites. But it's just a shadow, a shadow of the uber-excessively gracious knockout victory won for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest promises of Scripture is that God will do whatever it takes to bring his people to him, and he will never let them go. Jesus. Jesus has promised his followers life, unending, death-defying life. So get your head and your heart around that. And as, as you do, your life will be marked with thanksgiving and a sense of gratitude and even a joy, a joy that the hardest things in life can't take away but do you believe have you heard enough have you seen enough and so let me move to my second point now you know over the years there's probably been hundreds if not thousands of people who have claimed to be special messengers or prophets from God and even a few have identified themselves uh, and claimed to be God come down in the flesh and you can visit many of their cults their graves and even their tombs around the world today and ancient Egypt was no different. There were all kinds of gods and idol worship in the day-to-day -day life of the kingdom. There was even a god of the river Nile, the Nile god, a guardian of the primary physical source of all life in Egypt. The Nile god was believed to be responsible for fertilizing and nourishing the land, sustaining the prosperity of Egypt, the Nile god. But amongst the, the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh, he was seen as a god. Moses was saying that he was representing an entirely unique god, a holy God, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, the one true God. And so maybe you can see why Moses anticipates the Israelites asking for proof that this wasn't just wishful thinking from Moses, that God really had appeared to him. And as God provides for Moses three repeatable signs, Moses becomes able to effortlessly demonstrate divine power, which authenticates his good news message of the coming victory over Egypt. You see, the right sign, 
the right sign can make the unimaginable real. His lifeless walking stick becomes one of the most dangerous living creatures. You see that in verse 33 where Moses like runs away from it. And in verse 6, like the flick of a switch, Moses' hand becomes diseased and unclean. And as easy as it happened, the illness is reversed. And the final scene is given, final sign is given, but it's not yet demonstrated. It's promised. That's verse 9, where Moses is to take some of Egypt's source of life the water from the Nile, and when it was poured out on the ground, the water will become blood. Now, that would be a potential death sentence for the whole of Egypt and for their Nile god. So these are not random party tricks. They are divine acts of judgment over creation, over humanity, and over the realm of the so-called gods of Egypt. And as Moses wields these signs, the Israelites are bound to think, surely our holy, invisible, all-powerful God is made visible in Moses. God wants the Israelites to so believe Moses that they are willing to march into the palace of Egypt's brutal ruler and declare that we ain't afraid of you anymore. <laughs> you see, the right sign can make an unimaginable future real. And I think, I think, this was demonstrated in the life of Jesus because the religious leaders of his day, they would ask him for signs of his identity. But often, Jesus, seeing the intentions and hardness of their hearts, in on one particular moment, Jesus answered like this. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus spent his earthly ministry announcing that God's greatest victory had arrived, that the kingdom of God was at hand. And here he says that his resurrection, that's what he's talking about when he says three days in the heart of the earth, his death, burial, he says that his resurrection will be the supreme authentication of his identity and his good news message. And that authentication, just like when, I don't know, all of the email providers now, when you try and log in, they say, we've texted you. <laughs> you have to have your phone. 
you authenticate. And so here, the resurrection, in the resurrection, God the Father, the God of Israel, the cosmic judge, and the author of life authenticates. You see, the right sign, the right sign can make the unimaginable real, especially when it comes to clearing up exactly who is in charge. Now, you'll see a picture shortly. This is Marcelo on the on the right. This is Marcelo. He works for uh, the delivery company DHL. Um, and sat next to him, to his left, is the CEO of DHL UK. And this image was taken from an episode of Undercover Boss. I see you smiling. Have you seen this one? It's, it's a very good episode. Anyway, uh, if, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, let me explain what goes on here. It's a show where a boss goes undercover, hence the name, um, and... Uh, they go undercover to see how the business is really doing. And so Marcelo, uh, he moved to London when he was 21. He left his parents behind in Brazil. And the CEO here, as he spent time with him, he was so impressed with Marcelo's work ethic, his excellent customer service, his commitment to his family, actually. He was a man of character. A credit to DHL. And actually, Marcelo had been sending more than half of his monthly paycheck back to Brazil to support his parents. And many of you know what that's like. But the CEO was shocked to find out that Marcelo was actually, he was being exploited by DHL. He was on a dodgy employment contract without any stability or benefits. And the CEO was so impressed with Marcelo that at the end of his time undercover, he called him into his office and he, as he revealed his identity, he gave Marcelo a permanent full-time contract and a all-expenses-paid trip back to Brazil to see his family. But shortly after the announcement, the camera crew and the production staff noticed that Marcelo seemed subdued. And so they conducted an unusual final interview. And now, this is all in the episode. And so, if you want to watch it, I'll send you the link afterwards. But they conducted this unusual final interview where Marcelo eventually revealed that he didn't actually believe. He thought that this was TV magic. He thought this guy was a paid actor and not actually the CEO of DHL. He thought that the promises, the promises were empty. He said, I need to see his badge and ID card. <laughs> As you would. And Marcelo, thankfully, Marcelo was invited back into the CEO's office where Marcelo was shown the opening page of the monthly DHL business magazine. The CEO, he opened it up and showed it to Marcelo. And on the opening page, 
there was a kind of CEO's welcome signed by the CEO. And next to it was the CEO's picture. And it was this guy. And then the CEO leaned across his desk and he's got a framed portrait of him and the then Prime Minister, David Cameron. And Marcelo quietly mutters, no way. Now, now, now I believe. And you slowly see Marcelo's face as the weight of that meeting cascade over him. And he realizes who it is that is sat in front of him, or more importantly, who it is that made those life-changing promises. And the CEO, he kindly leans across his desk to Marcelo and he says, I want you to know for sure that the gifts are real. And as the unimaginable sunk in and became real, Marcelo was reduced to tears as the uncertainty of his job and the prospect of returning to see his mum and dad in Brazil began to take hold of him. What a moment. You see, Marcelo just couldn't. He would not allow himself to believe the good news until he was able to see a convincing sign. And now some of your minds may be running ahead and thinking of the disciple Thomas. Now, the disciples met the resurrected Jesus but there was one disciple, a disciple called Thomas, who wasn't with them at the time. And the disciples, they come to Thomas and they say, we've seen the Lord. He's not dead anymore. He's risen. And like Marcelo, Thomas wouldn't. He couldn't allow himself to believe the good news. He said this. Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I need to see his ID. <laughs> and it was only when Jesus appeared to Thomas in the flesh that the unimaginable begins to sink in and became real. Thomas stops doubting and believes. And he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Thomas, that same Thomas, he went on to become a bold and prolific missionary, taking the message of the resurrection east as far as India, and he was eventually martyred. He died for his Lord and his God. You see, the right sign, the right sign can make the unimaginable real and transform doubting into confidence. But in that meeting between the risen Lord, Jesus, and Thomas, Jesus did have more to say. He said this, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Oh, and church, this is a word for us, isn't it? 
We are the ones who are asked to believe the resurrection without physically seeing Jesus or putting our fingers in his wounds. And now that's not to say that we cannot have confidence in the resurrection. You see, the best explanation, if you think about this, the best explanation for the confidence of the disciples, for the explosive growth of the early church, for the choice the choice of making the resurrection central to the preaching of the early church. They were all about the resurrection. Of course you would be if it was real. Those choices, I don't think that's down to them just seeing. It's not just that they believed in the resurrection, but I think the best explanation for those like Thomas who were willing to deny themselves, to take up their cross and love and lose their lives as they did. I think the best explanation is that the living, reigning, risen Lord Jesus Christ actually appeared to them, yes, and he commanded their obedience and their allegiance to his mission. Friends, church, he really did rise from the grave. Let that reality sink in. You see, just like he did of the Israelites through Moses, God commands us to go. God does not expect blind or ignorant faith. He has provided an indisputable sign. And so the question remains, have you joined in with the disciples in radical obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and allegiance to his mission of self-giving love? As the good news of God's victory in Jesus is preached and demonstrated to the ends of the earth for 2,000 years, even today here in Rotherham. You see, when, when you get your head around the promises of Jesus, and you let the reality of his resurrection sink in, belief in God becomes both an unshakable gratitude and a radical obedience. In other words, for the Israelites, when God said, it's time to leave, belief starts gladly packing its bags. <laughs> and when Jesus says to us, Come die with me. Belief gets busy dying. Because in the end, church, dying is your victory. Did you hear that in the promise? Did you see it in the sign? And now the Apostle Paul, he can help us here as we really press this in. In Romans 6, Paul is explaining what that victory is that Christ has won for us. And notice the slavery and freedom language. 
I'll read it to us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You see, for Paul, the big story of the Bible is one where human beings, everyone, uh, they're stuck. We're stuck. We don't naturally acknowledge the goodness Mm -hmm. of God or do what he tells us to do. We'd rather live in his universe as if we are the center of it. And that's common to all of us, from Pharaoh to Moses, from you to me. All of us enslaved in that way of life. Enslaved by the fear of our eventual judgment for that way of life, our eventual death. None of us have lived the lives of gratitude, of obedience that we ought to. So without God, death is the ultimate defeat. You see, the only way out, the only way out from under the oppression of sin is down into death and judgment. The death and judgment that none of us want to face. But with God, Victory is possible. Freedom is within reach. You see, Paul says that when a person turns their allegiances from their selves to Jesus Christ in trust and repentance, Jesus takes them, unites them to himself. Or if I can put it like this, he fastens them in to himself. So that when Jesus hung on that cross, he was carrying us. Our mess and our bad choices. And he was being judged for our sin. And he died our death in our place. You see, his dying is our victory. Paul elsewhere, he says this, death has been swallowed up in victory. Hmm. You see, the only way out is down, either on your own or with and in the one who went down into death but did not stay there. See, dying is your victory. That's the promise. That Because he conquered sin and death and judgment, we will one day, like the sons and daughters in Egypt, we will plunder hell itself. Like Jesus, we will walk out of our graves. Like he did. To freedom, to life. To eternity and he did that for us we don't lift a finger 
we're not fighting. And so here's the thing. Until we trust his promises, until we trust his supreme sign, until that becomes real to us, we'll only ever be living towards our death. Captives to sin and self. But praise God that he saw us in our misery and captivity and he had compassion on us. In the Exodus, God promised to turn the tables on Pharaoh. But I hope you've seen, I hope you've heard enough to believe that in Jesus, God has promised to turn the tables on Satan and all of the powers and principalities of evil. And so this is a matter of life and death. Do you need a rescue? (laughs) Do you need freedom from your sin? Do you really want to really live? Do you want victory in your death? You see, God has done it. God has done it for you. And as we will in resurrection, so now in life, we follow our Lord and our God in denying ourselves, in daily taking up our cross, hearts full of gratitude, because dying a death of self-giving love, a life of joyful service, dying a death like his, daily dying a death, like his, is our victory. It's what he's won for us. And so you might feel powerless in life, in what you're facing, but Exodus and the cross scream out to us this afternoon, your God is not. Jesus. Jesus, vigorous in compassion, says, whoever loses their life for me will save it. Do you believe him? I mean, God wants us to so believe Jesus that you'd be willing to face your mortal enemy As Satan points out your sin, your vulnerability, your weaknesses, your regrets, your guilt. Jesus wants you to declare to Satan, we ain't afraid of you anymore. And so... Perhaps in the end, we'll, we, we see that the best question you can ask is not, why no sign? But, in what we've heard and seen, I think the best question is, what is God trying to show us? And let me close with this. 
Um, I think we find an answer in the famous words of Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes. Anybody know them? A few. Yeah, good. <laughs> so you'll know this song when I start singing the words. I'm not going to sing the words. If you don't know me by now, you will never, never, never know me. <laughs> it is a classic. It's a classic. But anyway, God, I think, I think what we're seeing here is that God is showing himself. And he doesn't just want us to know that he exists, that he's out there. He wants us to know what he's like. That by his compassion and power, he saves. And that's what he's always been. And that's what he will always be. And just think about it with me. God's compassion and power have been clear enough from the beginning. Think about this, just a little diagram here. When God creates the world and in compassion provided for us, in power he made the world out of nothing by his word. And at that point, he could have said to humanity, if you don't know me by now. <laughs> and so then in Exodus, because he didn't stop there. In Exodus, as we've seen today, in his obvious compassion, he makes big promises of solidarity and makes the unimaginable real through clear signs. And after the exodus, God could have said to humanity, if you don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. But, <laughs> but God's grace wasn't done yet. And as we've heard, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And in compassion, he dies for us. And in power, he rises for us. What more do you want than that? God, have, God could have said to the world, if you don't know me by now, if you can't see my compassion and love as my son bleeds and dies for your deliverance, if you can't recognize my power as Jesus defeats death and the devil, maybe you will never know. But God didn't say that. His grace wasn't done yet. In his compassion, God sends his disciples to share the news so that anyone can get in on this. A life of joyful worship is a possibility because God's mission has a church on the move. We are sent as a message. Not just our words, but our very presence, our love for one another, our dying to self is our message of a God who defeated both death and slavery to sin itself, as we've heard. And all of that empowered by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. God himself. What more do you want? What more do you need to see? And for those 
who have responded with gratitude to God and turning their allegiance from self to Christ. God's grace still isn't done yet for those united to him, for those fastened into Christ. Our future reality, what we wait for, what we're hoping for, expecting, is God's real presence restored and God remakes the world to live amongst us that's our big story and I hope it helps you to see how the exodus fits in to God's plan to make himself known to us and make his rescue real to us and make his grace and love so vivid that we'd be willing to pack up our old life and we'd be willing even recognizing his outstretched arms and his promises we'd be willing to jump to trust and so have you heard enough have you seen enough Do you believe? Will you keep on believing? Do you believe enough to give up on yourself? Do you believe enough to take the words of Thomas as your own and say of Jesus, our Lord and our God, our friend and our saviour, our substitute and our rescuer, our brother and our king. Church, (laughs) you need to know today that in his endless compassion for us, our God saves and in his unimaginable power for us our God reigns and so do you believe it enough to sing those words because that's what we're going to do now we're going to sing together but let me pray as the uh, musicians come heavenly father We don't really have the words. Um, Thank you. Thank you that you don't um, leave us in our sin, trapped as we were. Thank you that you've done everything necessary in Jesus Christ to free us, to bring us to life everlasting with you able to love and enjoy and treasure you so that as our life goes on whether in pain or joy whether in challenges or prosperity we know that you will never let us go you are our God. We thank you. We pray that you'd help us now to respond to you. Father, there's many of us here that need to respond in all kinds of ways to you. Thank you that you are a God who knows each one of us. 
And so we pray, help us to respond in song, in prayer, and in our hearts. We praise you and bless you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.